Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much for joining us today as we begin our final three non-Bonds film review series. My name is Scott Powell, and as always, I'm joined by my brothers in Bond across the pond, Jeffrey Taylor and Joshua. No, try that again. <laughs> Jeffrey Chapman and Joshua Taylor. Did you switch surnames? Have you changed? No, I yes, just think someone did. did a weird Photoshop with their faces or something <laughs> that's, that's like that. That's what it'll be. It'll be the Photoshop. Or we got married. Yeah, yeah well, no, hey. You know, anything, anything goes, uh, guys. Anything goes. Uh, Sorry about that. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Josh, today is your day, my man. We are going to look at uh, the start of our three non-bonds by reviewing your choice. And that's right. shall you reveal for our listeners what that's going to be? Well, fuck it. They clicked on the, the, the episode. They'll know <laughs> what it's going to be, won't they? Yeah, gonna... but it's always good to have a little pomp and circumstance. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Yeah, well, the pomp anyway. Go for it. The pomp for sure. All right. So my choice is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's 1940 classic Foreign Correspondent mm-hmm. starring Joel McCrea, uh, Lorraine Day, Albert Marshall, and George Sanders, released mm-hmm. by United Artists. In the year Produced 1940. Yeah. In the year 1940. That's right. The viewers can't see, but I presented my criterion collection version yes. on on the screen well the, the viewers one that was can on see sale. we can well, see viewers, listeners well, viewers can. can see but listeners I'm can't yeah and i agree I can <laughs> yes see. oh i was gonna so, say before we go any further josh um do you want to tell the listeners uh, in case they don't know what our three non-bonds is all about we've been doing this for four years now the three non-bond season what what is it all about uh basically each season we choose three Bond-esque films or non-Bonds, as we call them, uh, to review and critique and discuss. Hmm. Just kind of show how the Bond, I guess, influence has spread out uh, amongst the film industry and in different genres, how it's been influenced by previous films as well, par exemple. (laughs) Par exemple. Yeah. That's my terrible French, but anyways. Maybe in. Yeah. All right. It's uh, it's it's French with, with no capitals. <laughs> yeah. Or accents. <laughs> the it's transatlantic one, maybe. Yeah, Cary Grant's French. Speaking of transatlantic, uh-huh, that's yeah, kind of yeah. what we're doing here right now. Eh? Uh, it really is, cr- yeah. Really yeah. crashed that one there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh before we go into the foreign correspondent though, uh Really, in the world of Bond, there's not much going on except, you know, people speculating who's going to be the next Bond and all the usual squabbles. Mm -hmm. But there is something that we encountered this week, isn't there, Scott? Yeah, we've got, um, well, it's not been this week. It's been on the books for a while. But this week, I think maybe the trailer was released in Canada So you knew about it because I was blindsided by this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've known about it for a while now over here in the UK. Uh, Brian Cox is hosting this uh this kind of reality show called 007 road to a million and it's essentially i guess taking aspects of like fear factor or the amazing race and putting them into a a loose bond plot i guess well that's certainly the way the trailer is selling it right like yes. contestants will do bondian things in a bondian adventure to bondian earn a locales. million dollars exactly while he's like brian cox is kind of positioning himself somewhere between blofeld and m like i don't really understand don't, what his role is but or his character in the succession maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah it could be any of those or, or all three would he be double o Bra- black briar <laughs> that's right <laughs> double o black briar yeah yeah yeah, yeah so, that's right yeah 
but that's coming out in November <laughs> over here in the UK. I presume it won't be too much further along for you guys. I mean, maybe it's an American series. That's how little I know about it. Uh, but I've known Amazon, about it for a while. It's on What's Amazon. Road to a million, a million. Wide. Road to a million dollars. Yeah, the winners get like a million. Oh, road to a million. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So that makes sense. Since Amazon has purchased the bond, has purchased Bond, mm -hmm. this is their first like side project that they've done. Maybe I the first so, yeah. in, in more to, in more to come, perhaps. You know, you yeah. know, maybe we will get some sort of like spin-off series or something. Um, maybe maybe they can land uh Anna Darmas to continue her character from No Time to Die. That'd be kind of interesting because I know a lot of people oh, responded responded to her uh, mm -hmm. in different ways. Uh but uh that's the Anna Darmas factor, I suppose. Uh -huh. I was considering, you know, if they ever did a female M again, a good candidate acting wise would be Olivia Coleman in my opinion. She's an obvious pick. Yeah, she's a fantastic yeah. actor. She was an obvious pick. Not, and no, if bad. they wanted to go that way, they could, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, there, there's, there's other people too they, yeah. they could get for the role, obviously, you know. And I'm just thinking this too, guy. because... The, yeah. The, for the female M, sure, yeah. By this guy... Female, his, male, <laughs> animal. I would do either himself. one. Yes. I would do whoever, whichever M they needed. I would, I would be that that's, guy. Okay. I was going to say that's what he said. I don't know, but... Anyway. Uh, they, that's, what, that's what they said? That's what they said. Um, but seriously, though, I do think Amazon had some production credit um, in the most recent um, music of Bond documentary and concert performance that was on Amazon Prime. Oh, I think okay. they might have done something like that from the Royal Albert Hall uh, that was out last year. I'm, I'm not entirely sure if they did, though. It just feels like they did to me. But this was a big concert where David Arnold and Dame Shirley Bassey came back and uh, they had some other artists doing the Bond songs and they had kind of like um, introductions and chats from different figures. And, and it was interesting. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting. And what is Chris up to? Because I saw him, you mm. know, Bond on vinyl. He's mm. playing some sort of online James Bond game that's available now or something. Y yeah, he is. But <clears throat> I believe, well, there's a new, yeah. I mean, that that that's also happened in the world it's of Bond. The, the Apple's, iOS game, right? Apple's, yeah, the iOS game that came out, the Bond. So it's one. an it's an iOS game in particular. Yeah, but okay. I, I figured cool. you know about it, so I wanted. He's to got know something else in the works, though, Chris. Right. I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago just mm -hmm. to apologize for us having not been in touch sooner because he's going to come on board and do some. Hopefully, he's going to uh, do one of our final music episodes with us Ooh. before we uh, close that shop here on awesome. Bond by Numbers. And I just kept kind of putting it off, so I wanted to send him a message. And uh, in the process of doing that. Obviously, he's got his own little Bond music project in the works. Nothing's been released yet about it beyond a few little trailers, a few little spoilers, I think. Uh, I, I'm guessing he's going to do a Bond music podcast or a Bond music uh, short series oh, or something, which would be really cool, cool. because uh, it'd be great well If we can get onto that, I mean, with his acumen and your acumen and my like trivia, I mean, it mm -hmm. could work out pretty well. For, and Jeff's hats. Something. Jeff's hats are also good. <laughs> Jeff's yeah. hats are key. Yeah, my hat. Jeff's hats are key. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. For sure. That's but um, if we can get together though to discuss another film score, you know mm -hmm. that that would be really neat because we did Diamonds Are Forever and we did what was Majesties? the other one? Ma one was, and, Ma uh, and Majesties. Yeah, I was thinking yeah, it sure. might be nice with the 40th anniversary of Octopussy before Christmas, or maybe mm. even. Maybe even we will get, they ever uh, release that India track? I don't know, man. It's not just the India track. There's tons of stuff that hasn't been hasn't been released uh, yet, and true, I'd true. like I'd like to see what they I'd like to see what what they haven't released, you know. But it'd be nice to get them on board for for something like that. And I know that you guys are just absolutely chomping at the bit to get a real good analysis of all time high out 
because it's something well we know you're going to provide it and i'm (laughs) and you know what i'm all for it i want to hear you like dig deep maybe you can convince us so do you can you know throw it in the hole that you just dug really deep (laughs) no i wouldn't do that oh i'd resurrect it it. time make it a time capsule listen i was talking to my good lady about this because you know how much she loves chats about bond and um she (laughs) she was telling me she's like well because I play in the song for her. I play it pretty much every day. And uh, poor girl. That's how she, and that's how you get her to leave the room. Not at all. I was I'm telling her, you know, Sarah, I feel your pain. I was telling her that this is an underappreciated Bond melody. And she was and what like, did she, say? she was like, yeah, it is. And I said how Jeff and Josh always talk about oh. the frozen food section. And she said, well, I can see why, <laughs> I can see why people say that and why it gets that sort of feel. But any good song gets overplayed <laughs> in the grocery section. But That's she agreed with me. She agreed with me. She oh. said it, it is underrated. And now, I mean, that might be from 25 to 22. I mean, that's an yeah. underrating. That's when you know she's a keeper. But, well, yeah, I think she's trying to close the conversation, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I'm not under any the illusion. The important thing is you know that. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's exactly right. Like, I'm not under any, that's any awesome. false pretense here. I'm very but happy we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Whatever Chris is doing, it's going to be good. It's going to be creative, yeah. and uh, we wish him the best. But hopefully, he'll come on um, and and do one of our last shows with us before uh, we wrap up. Be the, nice. uh, yeah, some sometime in 2024. But we're not about that anymore. Brian Cox, go to bed. Chris Wood, see you later. We're here to talk about Josh, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, and foreign correspondent. So take it yeah. away, Josh. Uh, what, what's the format of today's show? Well, I'm going to go through some fast facts as per usual. Uh, then I also have a fun summary to read aloud and you guys can react to and chortle and giggle and comment as you will. And then following that, we'll do our review. We'll go through the uh, story. We'll go through the acting and the atmosphere. Sounds fantastic. And once again, guys, thanks for joining us here on the show. We hope you enjoy not just this episode, but our entire Three Non-Bonds season. It'll be our last one here on Bond by Numbers. So strap yourselves in, uh, feet up, and take it away, Double O Taylor. Right. So in making the decision to choose the last non-bond, I had I was struggling with, you know, with what to do, because I was thinking foreign correspondent, because that's my favorite of like the British Hitchcock thrillers, the ones before he he made before he came to the United States. And and three, because three nine steps is just obvious. But then I heard that Jeff Jeff has seen a lot of the British and, and the lady of the British Hitchcock and the lady vanishes. So, you know, I decided not to do that. Another one I thought of was um, had a similar vein involving like traitors in the government is uh, the adaptation of Graham Greene's. Well, it's an adaptation of a Graham Greene novel made into a film called This Gun for Hire with Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. And it's set like in, you know, in America and there's a spy thing going on. It's kind of a similar story to like Hitchcock's Saboteur as well. And I was thinking of that one, too. I also thought of maybe North by Northwest because, you know, there a lot of the formula of the James Bond film is in that as well. So I was in the, the grounds of, I was, but I, as you can see, I was circling Hitchcock on this matter. Mm-hmm. And then I just thought of, you know, would be interesting, would, would be, would be to choose like an early Hitchcock that beyond, you know, film scholars would consider outside of, you know, popular 
um, the popularity of the time. You know, we think when you think of early American Hitchcock, you think of Rebecca or Lifeboat or something like that, or even uh, you know, as we did on Lighting the Pipes, Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, but no, I went with the second American Hitchcock film, uh, Foreign Correspondent. It has a timely World War II story and uh, is a little bit of a prop propaganda slash message film and still has all the elements of like 39 Steps and other Hitchcock films in it. So I thought it was a cool pick to make. And, you know, it was just something a little different. So that's why I went with Foreign Correspondent. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm and glad I had you did. Seen it. It's an interesting one. And I had one. seen it recently. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, glad you did too. <laughs> I, I hadn't seen this movie. I was talking to Jeff just before we started recording. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen the movie uh, since I moved here to the UK. I used to go up to Glasgow. Oh, wow. I used to go up to Glasgow at the HMV on Argyle Street. I don't know if that's even still there. If it is, it'll be one of the last ones. And yeah. they used to have um, <clears throat> all kinds of DVDs and stuff. This is back 2006, 2007 time. And I would grab... <laughs> some different Hitchcock ones. They were people listening will probably recognize them, particularly here in the UK. They were the, the, the white covered universal kind of, they were, they were kind of retouched up, but they weren't, you know, oh, quality yeah. redone uh, in terms of restoration, but they had little special features on them and interviews and stuff anyway. And I got foreign correspondent there. I'd watched it and put it away again. It isn't a film that I teach. It's not one of those films that I take out and watch often. So I had to go back up in the loft and see if I still had it. And yeah, sure and enough, did? I do. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, wow. So nice. uh, yeah, stuck it back in and watched Kudos it again. Kudos for being able to find it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, we got our context established then. So let's uh, dig mm. into the history of Foreign Correspondent, as brief as I can make it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we'll go into you know what it's all about. Foreign Correspondent is a very loose adaptation of Personal History, the memoir of U.S. news reporter Vincent Sheehan. At the time, Maverick producer Walter Wenger, one of the United Artists independent producers like that of Charlie Chaplin, uh, who danced from studio to studio with his producing acumen, was one of the most prolific interventionists in Hollywood during the pre-World War II era. Interventionist meaning we should get involved in this, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when that was not the attitude. Uh, in a time when America was back was getting back on its feet from the Great Depression, not to mention the corresponding rise in anti-Semitism pooling into the states from Germany, despite an ocean between the two continents, isolationism reigned. President Roosevelt was sympathetic to the situation, but most of his cabinet was on the fence when it came to, to the notion of involving America with an increasingly probable war in Europe. So pro-war figures like Wenger kept such projects on the back burner. However, when Hitler invaded Poland, enough was enough. Though the United States would not declare war against the Axis powers until that day that would live in infamy in December of 1941, Wenger was ready to contribute his part to the war effort, even if America wasn't. Joe Breen, the president of the Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Office, wanted things on the fence as well. He could not encouraged stories of war told from a European perspective in the films that were made. He was adamant that Germany could not be outright defend, identified as the aggressor in those films. So they were keeping it on the on the low, so to speak, right? They didn't want yeah. to ruffle any feathers. Now, films of this time, um, 1939, 1940, uh, one in, for example, Arise My Love with Ray Millen and Claudel Colbert, uh, were, which shared a, a similar romantic coupling and, and a war story with a foreign correspondent. These films, I mean, around this time would cleverly navigate these obstacles set by the Hayes office. Uh, 
at least up until Pearl Harbor. But producers like the likes of Walter Ranger would push the envelope if they could, especially if these producers were arriving overseas to escape the German menace. British producers like the Hungarian-born Alexander Korda, who was interrupted in the UK filming of Thief of Baghdad, wherein he halted production midway, took it overseas to Hollywood, where he finished filming it. Another British emigre like Korda was Alfred Hitchcock, already famous for his thrillers of 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original with Peter Laurie, not the later Jimmy Stewart one, uh, and Jamaica Inn. He had been recruited by David O. Selznick, uh, who made productions such as Gone with the Wind, discovered all these stars like Catherine Hepburn, a big player in Hollywood. That's what Selznick was. Uh, Selznick was a man who paved his way through the studio system since the early days of the 1920s. With Selznick, Hitchcock had produced his first U.S.-made film, the critical and financially successful Rebecca, an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's gothic mystery. Wenger knew Selznick. He knew that Hitchcock resented talk of, of himself back in England, saying he abandoned his country and he should be at home making agitprop you know, for the British war effort. As far as we know, Hitch held his British heritage very dear and jumped at the chance to make foreign correspondent. So when Selznick proposed he direct for Walter Wenger, Hitchcock was in. It seems the goal was to create a balance between a message film and a standard Hitchcock thriller. Wenger wanted to entertain and edify. Up till now, Wenger had gone through two directors on the project, Louis Milestone and German-born William Turrell. He also had screenwriter John Howard Lawson on call, but funding via the Bank of America dried up when they did not want to involve themselves with an anti-German project. But with the war engaged, Wenger was now ready to pull the trigger. Now, Personal History was a memoir of Sheehan's reportage on the scene, but on, on the scene during the Bolshevik uprising and the rise of Hitler and Mussolini and the Spanish Civil War. He was a colleague and friend of Ernest Hemingway, not surprisingly. But because of the Hayes office mandate, Wenger had to steer clear of referring to nefarious nature of Germany and other fascist regimes. So this would be a Hitchcock film in essence, a male reporter forced into the middle of all this, a romantic pairing with the female lead, mm -hmm. composite onto a series of set pieces, some action, a chase scene, some stunts, some betrayals, lots of suspension, tension, and humor that came with the Hitchcock picture. So Hitchcock assembled his team, consisting of screenwriter Charles Bennett, his loyal wife and partner, Alma Reville, and his assistant, Joan Harrison. They wrote the screenplay, which took which also took contributions from novelist James Hilton and the humorist Robert Benchley, who would play Stebbins in the finished film. They wanted to make another 39 steps, but with an average American Joe as a titular foreign correspondent. They went as far as naming the protagonist Johnny Jones before giving him an alternate but still alliterative name. For the role of Jones slash Huntley Haverstock, Hitchcock requested Gary Cooper and either Barbara Stanwyck or his Rebecca alum, Joan Fontaine, for the love interest, Carol Fisher. But in Hollywood, at least, thrillers were not the province of big stars. So after some refusals, Joel McRae was cast as Johnny Jones slash Huntley Haverstock. He made his trade with RKO in the 30s with the controversial romance Birds of Paradise and The Most Dangerous Game, which was filmed on the same set concurrently as King Kong, even sharing the same talent, such as Faye Ray. After a series of non-impactful roles in the 30s, McRae got into real estate, purchasing land for what would be later his own ranch. He's still acted and happy to be cast in Hitchcock's second American film. After foreign correspondent, McRae would later cultivate his easygoing and self-deprecating humor in comedy, particularly the works of Preston Sturges and satires like Sullivan's Travels and classic screwballs like The Palm Beach Story. 
You may recall McCray appearing in several Westerns down the line in his later years. He even met Wyatt Earp in the late 20s when he worked as a ranch hand for some Western that film that was being made. He was offered the lead role in The Postman Always Rings Twice, but turned it down for moral reasons. By the late 40s, he made only Westerns, happiest in the saddle and with his multi-million dollars in property. Why not? Mm. For the role of Carol Fisher, the young star of the past few Dr. Kildare films, Lorraine Day was cast. Day hailed from Utah, born Lorraine Johnson, and would later marry Dodgers manager Leo DeRoche, even given, uh, even given the unofficial title of First Lady of Baseball. Hitchcock did one did get First one Rebecca baseball. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, interesting. I, I don't know much about baseball history, but apparently Leo DiRache thought, was a, was a big name. I thought that was Madonna in the League of Her Own. What's <laughs> wrong there? I think you I think I think you got it mixed with Gina Davis. Was what was her character's name? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <clears throat> yeah. Or Lori Petty. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah. That's First weird. Lady of Baseball. How about that? Interesting. So. Hitchcock did get one uh, Rebecca Alum, uh, but it wasn't Joan Fontaine. Instead, George Sanders, known for playing baddies and cads like he did in Rebecca, was cast as British correspondent Foliot. Uh, Sanders won an Oscar in 1950 for All About Eve and continued his villain roles as Mr. Freeze on the 60s Batman TV series and the voice of Shere Khan in The Jungle Book. That's awesome. Uh, that's cool. That's a that's a neat yeah. thing. Very a very a very creative actor. Obviously, um, not like typecast him. in himself. He stretches out to do different things, Ooh. and he's okay to laugh at himself. Like I like that. Yeah, and great on screen too. Yeah, oh, he, yeah he's he, he's very uh, entertaining to watch. I must say. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Herbert Marshall was another Hitchcock alum, having starred in Murder in 1931. Marshall was a leading man on the London and Broadway stage, and so was he in moving pictures. In the 30s alone, he was paired with Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, Bette Davis, Norma Shearer, and Joan Crawford, etc., etc. So he was, and he was married five times. He was a bit of a notorious ladies' man, actually, even with a prosthetic leg, of which he barely limped with, a painful reminder of his service in the First World War. He experienced phantom pain constantly throughout his life, worsening as he got older. He was cast as German operative and Carol Fisher's politician father, Stephen Fisher. Albert Basserman, a German expatriate, played the Dutch peace treaty expert Van Meer. Basserman had fled Germany in the early 30s as his wife was Jewish. Edmund, and this is the, the big one here, Edmund Gwen, known for playing avuncular figures on the British stage and in Broadway in, and in cinema, was cast as Mr. Rowley, the Cockney assassin. Years later, in 1947, Gwen famously played Chris Kringle in the original Miracle on 34th Street. He won an Oscar yeah, for that, didn't he? I believe he did, yes. Supporting absolutely. actor? Or totally maybe didn't as a, because he didn't yeah. have a beard. Basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was pushing people off churches. <laughs> well, trying to. <laughs> or trying to, anyways. Uh -huh. uh, Selznick also loaned Wagner, uh, William Cameron Menzies, an art director who, working on Gone the Wind with such intensity, forced Selznick to give him a new title production designer, a title that stuck around in Hollywood afterwards. As an art director, he worked well with Hitchcock as the latter has started his career as an art director. Both of them drew storyboards for the film and Hitch even had Menzies direct a scene, the seaplane sequence. A model was used for the exterior shot of the plane with the set that moved around combined with camera work to give the impression of a crashing screen, of a crashing plane. 
Water was then poured into the set for the flooding sequence. The ceiling was made of rice paper, allowing the actors who could not escape the sinking plane to burst through the top so they could breathe above the camera line. The cockpit of the sea, yeah, pretty amazing, eh? And the cockpit of the seaplane was a set as well, with the rear projector of footage shot by a pilot that that of himself diving to the ocean surface. Just off the wow. coast of California, that was filmed. So the rear projection screen was also made of rice paper. So when the plane crashed into the sea, water slides of water with these these big tanks, would, the tanks would burst open, and the water would pour down these like this like canvas slide, and then crash through. The, the projector screen so that it looks like you know the a, a rapid rush of water bursts through the rice paper projector screen and into the cockpit as the pilots run out as the plane yeah. hits so it hits the hits the water so that's how they film that sequence which is pretty darn cool i have to say for 1940 that's yeah that's yeah knowing hitchcock as a director that i mean he's gone on record as saying this many times himself but you know, the fun for him is in the imagining of putting the story together. Like the actual filming is a means to an end. That's the part he doesn't yeah. like as much. They're all, he, they're all, he likes having it. Yeah. He likes having it all up here. So I'm wondering if he actually worked out in his head ahead of time, the crew he was going to need and how he was going to make that happen. Or was that something that evolved organically once he brought it to the the stage and started yeah. thinking about how are we going to make this? Like, I, I just wonder if that was him working out the special effects yeah. or if it was something that he he because he did delegate a lot more earlier in his career before he became the auteur i think you know so well, I, like I wonder... to menzies for example yeah, right yeah, like exactly menzies do this kind of stuff precisely mm, cool now the windmill exterior and interior was built Ooh. on a hollywood soundstage a matte painting for the exterior including the two windmills in the distance was conceived to create the spinning veins onto the matte picture the exterior of the main mill and the two other mills were part of the painting. So, but there was holes created in the mate, which actually had propelled prop veins spinning. And then a live action composite filmed outside of Los Angeles was created for the foreground shot of Jones, Carol, and Foliot arriving in the car. So that's that's pretty cool. That one long shot, if you recall. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Hotel Europe balcony sequence was crafted on a soundstage obviously, uh, with the Europe signage and the face of the building only a matte painting. The hotel part was where the, ho the hotel part of the sign of the signage was actually on the set. Uh, McCray was only two feet off the stage. When he breaks the last three letters of the signal for hotel, it now says hot Europe and in joke indicating the state of Europe at the time of filming. Oh. Yeah. I noticed the that. epilogue I was that, that was, works. <laughs> yeah. The epilogue with Huntley and Carol making an announcement as London was bombed was written at the last moment. While the story takes place before the uh, outbreak of war in September 1939, it was and, and after, it was filmed in 1940 when the war was already raging. Ben Hecht, the reporter turned screenwriter who wrote the front page, Scarface, and later Notorious, was called in to write this final sequence as Jones, Carol, and and London heroically braved the Blitz. Wenger was adamant to Hitchcock's chagrin to make sure all the news updates from the actual war would be included in the proceedings of the film in some capacity. Hitchcock did as he was told and focused on his set pieces. Uh, and regarding the epilogue, the film opened August 16th in the US, three days after the Luftwaffe had started to bomb coastal airfields in England, a week before 
the bombing of London on August 24th. So that scene with McRae reading, doing, doing the broadcast at the very end when Britain, when London's being bombed was before like the Battle of Britain. So just like, wow, I don't know. That just kind of, that, yeah. Because yeah. that's what I mean. Because I was thinking, because I was thinking about that. I'm like, how the hell did they know? Like, I was like doing the math in my head. I'm like, wait, if this was this, and I was thinking, like, how the hell did that? Go? Like, that's crazy. Obvious yeah. strategy by the Germans, I guess, because by that time they knew about Blitzkrieg. They knew what happened to Poland mm-hmm. and yeah, well, and you know France. And if you think about it, so I'm assuming that you know going for England was the next step by Germany, or Goering was just predictable. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Hitler was predictable in that sense so it was an expensive film it was budgeted at one million one million dollars 484 167 and earned just over just a slightly above that so there was a little bit of a loss but it did do all right financially the film uh, and was critically acclaimed for the most part although a lot of critics did consider it a b picture because that's how thrillers were, treat, were, were treated back then. Just like film noirs were, even though they weren't categorized at the time, they were kind of considered as B-pictures as well. Um, Wanger would continue to produce films for United Artists and was probably vindicated for his interventionist tendencies after Pearl Harbor. He was not vindicated, however, for the near killing of his then-wife Joan Bennett's agent, whom he shot in anger when he thought Bennett and the agent were having an affair in 1951. He served only four months getting off with temporary insanity. Wow. He returned to filmmaking. His temporary last film insanity. 19- Josh, that yeah. reminds me of uh, our book review on Anatomy of a Murder from uh, Absolutely. From Light in the Pipes, eh? Like, honest to God, like the male privilege, man, that, that persists, uh, persisted in that era. Like, it's fucking nuts. Anyway. And of course, Winger would have his filmic comeuppance because his last film was 1963's Cleopatra for 20th mm-hmm. Century mm-hmm. Fox. Mm-hmm. And we know how all that turned out. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, one of the Spoiler, critics, not well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the critics who praised the film was none other than Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. According yeah, to Patrick crazy. Humphrey's The Films of Alfred Hitchcock, Goebbels called Foreign Correspondent a masterpiece of propaganda a first-class production which no doubt will make a certain impression upon the broad masses of the people in enemy countries. Mm. Oh, he would know. You gotta give credit where it's due. That's crazy, man. That's quite an interesting man. Could you imagine that? Imagine that acclamation on the back of the DVD. Like, what? Yeah, you know, right. like, yeah, you're, yeah, like, yeah. you're like, you know, recommended by Joseph Goebbels. <laughs> Joseph God. Goebbels gives this like Ebert, Cisco, but, but not in a bad way. I did not, not see that coming. But yeah, this is where I would I would insert that Jacob Bloom hmm meme. That's what mm, I would yeah, do. yeah, 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 absolutely. I use that all the time. And it's funny, too, because Goebbels was very much involved in the German film industry, you know, dating actresses and stuff like that as his mistresses and whatnot. So he was very similar to a Hollywood producer and just a much more sadistic and disturbed way, I suppose. Anyway, that's basically the production of Foreign Correspondent uh, with some fun facts there about the actors and the cast and crew and stuff. So I thought you guys would enjoy that. Good work. Good context there. Um, shall we shuffle over and provide a little summary for our listeners as well, in case they hadn't seen the film or for a while haven't seen the film? Yabo.
Johnny Jones, yes, that is his name, but he will soon be referred by more than one name in this summary, and maybe with a slash between his name, is a Maverick reporter for the New York Morning Globe. He recently beat up a police officer and is on the firing dock when his boss, Mr. Powers, the owner of the Globe, recruits him as his new foreign correspondent in Europe. You see, it's the last quarter of 1939, and, that there, and there is a great threat of a general war in Europe. Hmm. Jones has worked with a British leader of the Universal Peace Party, also known as the Redundancy Party, Stephen Fisher, who is induced with gentlemanly swagger and furtive, possibly evil glances at our hero reporter. On top of this, Mr. Powers thinks his name is terrible. Confession. So do we. So the audience and Powers renames him Huntley Haverstock. Sure, because that's better. Yeah, so apparently Huntley... it's more English. It's more European. Yeah. I guess. Well, so. I mean, it is like, it, I mean, honestly, sorry to interrupt you, but Johnny Jones, like this is just Yankee doodle goes to town, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. Where's Jimmy? They should just had Jimmy Cagney in the role. <laughs> singing Jimmy Cagney, not, 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 not gangster Jimmy Cagney, singing Jimmy Cagney. Because he did Yankee doodle dandy, right? He was like the main guy in that movie, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we'll go for that. Sure. Anyway, probably takes. I'll, I'll say yes. I don't know. Sure. So <laughs> Huntley, ta- Huntley takes a steamer across the pond to jolly old England. A train takes him from the port to the London terminal, where waiting for him is senior U.S. correspondent Stebbins. Stebbins is on the wagon, drinking only milk for a month after a long time bender. Huntley's assignment is to meet up with Dutch strongman leader of the Belgian-Dutch treaty, Van Meer. By sheer coincidence slash plot contrivance, they are staying the same. They are staying at the same hotel. And Huntley and the old Dutch gentleman share a cab driven by a guy who looks a lot like Alfred Hitchcock. At the luncheon, now here's my thing: Does Hitchcock appear in this movie? Because yes. was he the cab driver? Could it look like no. him? They said he was that he street. was reading a newspaper. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I again, I'm going by Wikipedia. It's near. Yeah. It's near it's that point, though. Years. It's very much near to that yeah. point where he they exit the train station bar and he gets out yeah. and he's walking was, for a few steps yeah, on the yeah. pavement. And he passes Hitchcock, just as Jeff says, you know, with, with the <laughs> 39. I like it's a good one. That's a good one. Um, uh, holding the newspaper. Yeah, reading, reading behind the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the luncheon held at the Savoy that is hosted by the Peace Party, Huntley first meets Carol Fisher. He attempts to flirt shamelessly with her, but she's not buying what he's selling. Imagine his embarrassment when he finds out that she is A, Stephen Fisher's daughter, and B, one of the key figures of the peace movement. To be fair, I would I would have been embarrassed after sending 13 notes to her table. Yeah. The story, yeah, yeah that's a bit uh, extreme. After three. Uh, that's called harassment. Yeah. The story takes us to Holland, where the peace movement is making its biggest effort with Van Meer. Huntley, with the Fishers, is on the front steps of the edifice where the conference is being held. It's pouring down rain, and everyone has an umbrella. Van Meer arrives and is subsequently shot by an assassin posing as a photographer. Because he is the hero, Huntley pursues the assassin through a maze of umbrellas, but loses when the villain catches a ride. But loses him when the villain catches a ride. Huntley is picked up by Carol and Scott Foliot, a British newspaper man covering the event who is behind the wheel. We get a car chase through Amsterdam all the way out to the flatlands where the vehicle they were in pursuit of has disappeared. Huntley feels feels that they ducked away into one of the windmills and decides to stay. Entering one of the windmills, he sees the assassin being tended to by a German heavy. Van Meer is located at the top of the windmill, still alive. They kidnap him. They kidnapped me, he says, and replaced me only to shoot that person. Right. A plane arrives and Huntley slash Jones manages to avoid detection in the windmill as a German smuggle Van Meer out of the country via the airplane. 
When the police arrive, no one believes his story, not even Foliot or Carol. Joe is just getting ready for his bed in his room at the Hotel Europe when the two local detectives arrive and want to speak to him. When he realizes the line is cut and these are probably not police officers, he ducks into the bathroom claiming he wants to bathe before going to the police station for more questioning. Once in the bathroom, his worst fears are confirmed as he sees the policemen taking out concealed guns from the keyhole. He starts filling up the tub, locks the door from the inside, and steps out onto the balcony, and then onto another balcony, and onto another one. He ends up in Carol's bathroom and has to work hard to convince her the detectives are there to kill him. She catches on. That too. She catches on because plot, and we have to start this romance at some point. Through some trickery with the hotel staff and the party that Carol is hosting, the two slip out. They board a packet out of Holland back to London. The German agents, disguised as policemen, arrive too late to catch them. On the trip across the channel, they confess their love for each other. Huntley suggests they get married. Guy works fast. But he did tell Powers he wasn't lucky enough to be married earlier. So Boyd took his shot and was successful so far. What will Daddy Fisher think? More importantly, what will Opa Fisher think? Whoops, fast forward there a little bit. Let's Mm -hmm. rewind back to where we left off. Back in London, they visit Carol's father, Stephen. They find him having a breakfast with the man that Huntley slash Jones recognizes as a German heavy at the windmill. His name is Mr. Krug, who is known by the Fisher family, including Carol. The two make eye contact, and Huntley does not hide the fact that he recognizes him, only in a real subtle-like fashion. Shortly after, we get Stephen Fisher in a room alone with the German and his two big dogs. Stephen Fisher is in on it. He warily agrees with Krug that the Yank has to go, so Fisher is a German spy. They're going to hire an assassin to kill Huntley. They employ a local agent, someone who has done efficient work for them in the past. Fisher tells Huntley slash Jones that he requires a bodyguard if he's going to be working in London. He gives Mr. Rowley, the Cockney assassin, enough time to arrive and pick up Huntley, who, re- who reluctantly agrees to the having a bodyguard. At this point, he does not suspect Fisher. Fisher, meanwhile, learns that his daughter is in love with Huntley. Rowley escorts Huntley from the back of a London cab, fabricating that they are being followed as he knows Huntley slash Jones wants to get to the press office to share what he knows. Rowley convinces Huntley to lead the cab as a measure to lose the made-up tail. They duck into a cathedral to lose them all the way up to the roof. Rowley is a patient bastard waiting for the right moment to push Huntley over the edge, but a miscalculation and dumb luck on Huntley's part turns the tables and it's Rowley who has the free fall. Oh no! Anyway, back at the press office, Huntley receives counsel from Stebbins as Foliot. And Foliot. The hiring of Mr. Rowley makes it clear that Fisher is a double agent. A plan is formed to kidnap Carol and arrange an exchange for Van Meer, whom they are sure is hidden somewhere in London by Fisher and Krug. Joel is going to take her all the way to Cambridge and spend a night at a quaint hotel, which Foliot will use as a pretense for the kidnapping. All right then. So Jones and Carol take their road trip and Foliot visits Fisher in his home to to extort him as they had planned. Emphasis on planned. For when they arrive at Cambridge, Carol learns that Jones has booked two separate rooms, realizing that she is being sidelined when in fact it's just Jones being cautious about the relationship. Meanwhile, Foliot confirms Fisher's involvement with Krug and the Van Meer situation, only to lose ground incredibly when Carol arrives. Fisher was set to meet Krug, who was insistent that Fisher get to the safe house ASAP to speak to Van Meer. Fisher calls Foliot's bluff via note, but Foliot is, is in hearing distance to learn the address Fisher gives to the cabbie. Before hailing the cab, Fisher tells Carol that they are taking a clipper back to America in the morning. Carol complies, believing that Jones has used her for information. Fisher arrives at the safe house, a building with a lobby administered by two middle-aged German women with concealed handguns. 
In a room upstairs, Krug and his two thugs are providing sensory deprivation torture to Van Meer, blurring loud jazz music and inundating him with bright lights. Before you can say there are four lights, Foliot enters, that's a Star Trek reference for those who didn't get it, Foliot enters the room, a prisoner of one of the German women. He is forced to sit in the corner to watch as Fisher Fisher gently prods Van Meer for information. He needs to know about the secret clause 27. Foliot is interrupting the questioning. Van Meer realizes that Fisher isn't who he says he is and denounces him. Fisher proceeds to have Van Meer tortured more to the brinking point, but Stebbins and Jones arrive outside. The party in the room breaks up and Foliot takes his opportunity to duke it out. The Germans almost have him, but he dashes out a window and laissez-faire crashes through the awning immediately next to Stebbins and Jones. Van Meer is rescued, convalescing in a nearby nursing home. Foliot uses his cousin to get tickets on the same clipper the Fishers are embarking on in the morning. Then a shout in the streets, war is declared. On board the clipper, Stephen Fisher receives a note that Van Meer is conscious and talking. Arrangements will be made to receive him. He needs to land the plane somehow because he's going to be arrested on arrival in America. Or that's what we think. He confesses to Carol of his true loyalty. He also tells the steward the cable is not for him. And it wasn't. It was for Foliot. Fisher accepts his fate. It's an awkward reunion between the Fishers, Foliot, and Jones. Carol still believes that Jones is after her father. But Jones says he's just a reporter. The war makes no difference to him. It's all about her. Entering that moral quagmire comes a German destroyer shooting at the clipper. It's war after all. Some deserving passengers protest the situation and are snuffed out literally by accurate gunfire thousands of feet below. The plane nosedives into the plane nosedives into the ocean and only a handful of the crew and passengers, our principals included, make it out of the sinking fuselage to climb on top of the floating debris. To ensure his daughter's survival and to take responsibility for his crimes, Fisher nonchalantly leaps into the surging sea. An American steamer, the Mohican, picks them up and is en route to London. On board the Mohican, Carol overhears Johnny Jones telling Foliot that her father died a hero, saving the survivors, and she forgives him, and allows him to tell the story to the New York Morning Globe. The Mohican captain glowers over him, keen to ensure that he does not release his story to embarrass the U.S. government regarding Fisher's, you know, true allegiance. Unbeknownst to the captain, the speaker with Mr. Powers in New York is turned on, and all the juicy details are being delivered to the press. Cut to London, air raid sirens blaring. Huntley slash Jones is delivering a radio statement about the state of the war. The producer suggests go to the bunker as the bombing begins, but the lights flicker and flicker as the bombing intensifies. Unable to read the notes with Carol by his side, Huntley continues his speech, and the star-spangled banner swells, and the screen goes to black with a final explosion. The end. Well done. Nice work. That that's it. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, I think I did pretty good on that one. All right. So now it's time to talk about our rankings for story, acting, and atmosphere. This is how we rate the Bond films, and this is back in season one. And this is how we rate the non-Bond films whenever we come around to review them each year. So we'll start with story. Who wants to go first? I've talked for quite a bit, so you guys can start. Jeff, take it away. Uh, so I gave the story seven and a half. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was good. Um, I, I did like I. It was it was a good story. Um, I thought that there was lots of uh, twists and turns. Um, yet still fairly straightforward. It was it was very enjoyable and uh, it, it kept me interested. And I I did like the espionage portion of it and I liked all sort of the cast of characters I thought it worked well and 
Um, but uh, overall, I thought it was it was quite uh, it was quite well done. Uh, I guess we can chat about that. What do you guys? Um, yeah, we could talk about key scenes or or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, seven and a half. I I, I got to be honest with you. I I gave this a, a pretty low mark for story. Yeah. I was surprised. Um, I didn't. I found the tones really difficult to balance to reconcile. Like I. I appreciate the context that you shared because that that I think all learning and listening to you talk about the all the different things and the kind of motivations behind the story. I, I, too many cooks in a, in too many writers going on. A lot here. of writers I don't know. Working, like, working on it. My first my, my first problem pursued. is like, the overwriting of his character. Like I I don't see this guy punching a cop. Like I don't see him beating up a cop. And that's how he's introduced to us as like this yeah. reckless guy. And then he's like a dandy for the rest of the movie. Like, I just don't see that's how the, this guy yeah, is, is meant to be a tough, tough dude. Like, is, is that in there so that we'll buy him as like a rogue? So we'll buy him as like a tough guy when he gets to Europe and, and kind of fleshes out all of the, the badness. Like I, I didn't, I didn't see You're that. right. He did come off. as pretty much a softie as soon as he gets there. Oh yeah. But I guess totally. that, yeah, yeah. And I, though I actually did kind of enjoy the scene of, of the guy, um, what's his name? Uncle Powers, we'll call him, I guess. Uh, mm. Sort of <laughs> yeah. looking at the list of like who he wants. And he's like, no, we, what? Like, he doesn't even <laughs> yeah. know. He's like, what? The, honestly, I love the line where he's like, well, why don't we just interview Hitler too? Yeah, I guess we could do that. He's like, like, wow, this guy really knows nothing. He's like, okay. well, I, I didn't like, mind I, Powers putting I, him in Europe. I, no, I didn't see that I, was a problem. I, 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 no, no, like that, that was fine. Like I, I see where he's going here. Like he doesn't, he's not worried about this guy making it all about him. Like he literally knows nothing. So maybe he's gonna be honest about it. Mm -hmm. And like so like I can I mean that's not a new strategy. <laughs> it yeah. is kind of, so, no, it's not it's so not I understood yeah. that. Well, you're, right, you're right about the soft thing about him. Like they throw this line about him beating up a cop, and I'm like, first yeah. of all, I'm I'm I was sort of like that makes you want to hire this guy like well is that <laughs> like is, yeah. is the reason they, they they shoehorn that in there so that that will be his ticket out of the country like well you you're gonna do this job you're gonna go see what's going yeah. on in europe because yeah. you're a reckless dude and i don't know that i want you on my paper but yeah. at the same time there's contradiction in that because power says to him like europe's about to blow up and all i can get out of my own staff is like daily guessing game i think is the expression yeah. in the film yeah whereas and, and then he that, that, then doesn't he say to him like I how about, guy Bradley, how about like, the biggest how would you like to do the biggest story in the world right now like I don't see Powers is such an emotional boss he's not like yeah. a, he's not a strategist I don't yeah, see him no. I don't see him thinking two steps ahead and being like no, I'm no. sending you because according to a high official it is believed a foreign correspondent I could get more news out of Europe looking in the crystal ball that. Stebbin cable has a morsel in it. Stebbins makes me sick. They all make me sick. Europe about to blow up and all I can get out of my foreign staff is a daily guessing game. I want some facts, Mr. Bradley. For instance? Any kind of facts. But, I mean, hey, whatever. He arranges somehow. Like, if he if he can arrange for Jones to have lunch with Van Meer, like, wh why can't he get better information about what the fuck's going on over there. <laughs> if, he, if he's point. tight with okay. Van Meer, why does he need to send this oh, guy over point. to find the truth? Surely he can just do that himself. But then the other stuff <laughs> in the story too, though, like I, it, it is Hitchcock. It is Hitchcock, but like. Proto Hitchcock or like. I don't know. Like 
Yeah, I don't mind early Hitchcock stuff. I like early Hitchcock stuff. You know, yeah, I love Shadow of a Doubt. It's like it's one of my absolute favorites. But he asks the waiter, like we talked about it, like to deliver 13 messages. Oh, yeah. 13, like, yeah. that is silly. And then then Jones, or sorry, Haverstock, his puppy dog eyes and his like foolish. Oh, yeah. And yeah. his clapping, like his clapping when she's talking at the. That's just dumb. That's stupid. It's ridiculous. Like the story's gravity, which is all about spies and the eve of war, is completely yeah. upended by the silliness that this character brings into it. it. Like yeah. the levity creates a great imbalance for me. And I wanted I wanted more of the tone that I would have expected from Saboteur or the tone from Torn Curtain, yes. even. And that, that that there was no consistency in tone. Like Hitchcock was always putting the serious off with like silly humor and like not not exactly his girl friday stuff because that's not going on here but there's like han solo and leia stuff going on in here kind of that's... kind of more like luke and leia in, in a way because <laughs> like like to me to me like i found that like you could tell that he was the insert audience character joel mm -hmm. mccray and you could tell joel mccray has comic timing and everything like that and he was used in those in those sequences in the movie mm -hmm. uh for the romance scenes which they put a lot of comedy into it i think it's the fact that they tried to put a romance into this movie which automatically created the kind of screwball romantic comedy yes. you yeah. know style I mean, that, that's a big that thing some people love weird it. some people yeah. love it like granny o that's might have got a kick weird. out of it you know double ogio she might have liked that I'm yeah. I'm thinking, and then there's other stuff too, though, that took me out of it. Like the silly, the silly demands he makes when the cops, like, and why the fuck would the cops say, yeah, go have a bath, go on, go have a bath and we'll sit here and wait for you. Because they're not sure. cops. Yeah, yeah they, fine. They don't, well, yeah, yeah. I get that. <laughs> okay, but but then, then he gets into the other apartment and he's like, oh, uh, I need my windows cleaned. You have to retrieve my clothes, send the police, uh, blah, 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 uh, new sheets. Oh yeah. And, that was... and then all these people, I it's like a carry on film. They all yeah. go into the room. And yeah. and then the guys who aren't cops just kind of like what what's what uh? like it's so dumb as to be yeah there's like, just contrivances just like stupid you know and then how quickly the whiplash it's like I love you I love and want to marry you like I get <laughs> it 1940 okay fine yeah. but okay yeah I know that's uh, yeah does Hitchcock ever do that anywhere else in his career like I don't does think he so. does he ever speed it I don't up that think, much? I was thinking I, I was know. thinking maybe like I was thinking maybe north by northwest, but then I realized that Eve was kind of in on the whole situation mm -hmm. anyways, mm -hmm. and there was definitely chemistry. There was like sexual chemistry between Grant and oh yeah, um, and, and that was played Saint. out before. And there's there's no chemistry between these two at all in my in my opinion. Well, I don't know. Like yeah. I I just think I I, I, I I never felt it. And Carol, know. she turns she turns against her dad real quick. You didn't really mention this in your yeah. summary, but she says she says to Jones after she hears her dad, and then oh, she, yeah. at one scene she's like she's literally crying. She's like, "Well, oh, what am I supposed to do, my dad?" Blah, blah. And then the next scene she's like, "I've got to fight for my country the hard way." So oh, you yeah, can tell the yeah. story. Well, where did that change come from? Like a minute ago, you were crying about your dad, and now you're like turning him over because she overheard him saying he was a hero for save for like you know sacrificing himself and all that, right? I That's where I later. Where, where I thought it was still from. on the clipper. She was on the clipper where he confessed said, to her on the clipper. Yeah, right. And then she I, said, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with you that it's a bad point. I'm just saying it's that like it's the didn't she say that to Jones the on the clipper? Didn't she say it to him after that that like she I'm going to do it the hard she, way? She said, she said she, no. She said that on the Mohican because no. she was still she yeah. was still mad at him on the seaplane. She was still mad at him for yeah, okay, using well, her okay, yeah. to get to her father. Right. Okay. Like she accepted right. her. You could tell that she accepted her father's. Um, hmm. 
situation that her father was basically it's implied that he's going to turn himself in mm -hmm. um once they land right okay. and that's what he's going to do because he loves his daughter more and he wants to be a better person in her eyes yeah. which makes you know that which makes fisher a kind of a, a much more dimensional character yeah. at the expense of the two leads unfortunately um <laughs> yeah. well okay yeah. maybe i mean we'll see yeah. when we get to him and i guess even it doesn't matter like i'm splitting hairs at this point because the characters the lead characters these two anyway have they, they've already presented themselves as like walking contradictions so i yeah like, they're just like so they're like super that their romance is like saccharine and it's yeah. like they're just like political bots walking around in flesh suits and yeah. like, there's very very little semblance of reality for me yeah, or like yeah. him as a foreign it's a supporting characters that stand out for me in this story yeah. like it's a supporting character well, yeah that's so like, but it's the main character but, yeah, that's fine but it's the main characters that in. drive the story it's the main characters that drive the story and I, and I just kind of feel like i'm watching them like looking around for mario mushrooms or like fucking zelda keys or something like they're just kind of like wandering around like looking for yeah. stuff and and she's reacting like this and he's like hey and he's the guy it's that punched the cop but he's a total dandy and like i yeah. like the crash scene at the end but again yeah, this though, this has yeah, more to do with like with, with like the atmosphere like i i mean i don't know there's there's just not there's not much time lingering in the drama i guess this is what i'll say there's not a lot well, of time funny, lingering in the drama the banter is quirky and the comedy yeah. is like i get it it's like interwoven through the story but it doesn't really stick because the tone of the film is really conflicted for me personally the characters yeah. move from serious to in love to forgetful to back in love really like whiplash quick and i found that really off-putting difficult to roll with and it's it's incredible to me that this is the yeah. same guy who would direct the great films that i the guy who did lady vanishes the guy who did the 39 steps the guy who did rebecca and the guy who would do all these other great movies in the 40s through to the 60s and 70s like i i found this story really weird plus two hours way too fucking long way too long that's a, this movie that's a long film for me i gave i gave it five and a half because i enjoyed it just a little more than basic like i yeah. i had problems with it and it is my lowest mark the five and a half is my lowest mark of all three of them but yeah um I, there was just too big of an imbalance between what i'm supposed to think as gravitas and what i'm given which is like silly silly screwball stuff to borrow your phrase josh you know yeah so that's, well, that's I where thought i was, it was a, i thought it was a bit weird when like they're saying oh yeah okay the guy punched the cop and like he's gritty and then you see him come in and then i'm like okay well he looks like a pretty boy like i was expecting you know like a little more disheveled maybe a five o'clock shadow cigarette hanging in the mouth and you don't really see this uh this sort of uh rough and it's a good thing guy. he was you six know. two well, he's a big guy. Like he's handsome. Like he, yeah, yeah, man. Like he's that's, that's all like he has. He's a good voice. actor. I thought he was like I enjoyed him, but I but I do agree with what Scott was saying. Is sort of about the, it just kind of it's it's weird. The tones are all over the place. Even though like I did think yeah, too much, too much written in into this story. I don't think it needed to be as as dense as it was. Like to, I don't know. I don't know. I like, was. Sorry. No, I was just, I just wanted to quickly say like I was hoping to see a little bit more of the rough and tumble out of him, but he was just mm. more of a softy tumble. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're gonna have a guy that runs after assassins immediately after assassin assassins immediately after a killing takes place, a guy that right. does the things that he does, like hide in windmills and avoid, you know, being detected with all this kind of spy sleuthy kind of stuff. Okay, he's a reporter. I can see if he's a crime reporter for the globe, then I can see, you know, how he could 
be able to do those things. Mm -hmm. But you yeah, also got to back yeah. it up with the physicality. And one throwaway line about beating up a cop is not going to do that when he's no. playing like starring in a romantic comedy or something like that in, in other scenes, right? I just don't it's know whose like, purpose like, that, that meant, that line. I don't know whose purpose it meant. Yeah, I think in many ways, like my issue with like, one of my main issues with this, with the writing of this story is it's like, it's the, it's the idea I think of contrasting styles of humor. So you have, you know, like the dry British style of humor, which Hitchcock was known for in his films, which he brought to a lot of his American films as well. But then you also have the American style of humor, which is very vaudevillian, very slapstick. And of course, also the 30s, you know, screwball comedies also go into there as well. So as you say, like, I think they overwrote that into the story. And so you get these two slap dashes of humor in the film that I think one works well with it and the other doesn't. And because the romance is connected to that type of humor, all those scenes are jarring in itself outside of some other poor writing decisions, in my opinion. Um, like, for example, all the dialogue, a banter between like um, Huntley and Foliot or anything that Foliot says or anything that even Stebbins says, like, I found that kind of dry humor worked well for the movie. You know, like there was that ironic de detachment even. Um, and I think that worked well for the story because that's, you know, what we see in movies like the 39 steps and whatnot, what we've seen from Hitchcock that, you know, part of his style and that works really well. But I think they may have overdone the Americanness like that Hollywood style of comedy over the British comedy in the writing for this story. And I think that's one of its flaws for sure. Um, pacing is all over the place. You got like half message movie, half uh, romantic comedy, half action sequences. Like it's just it's suspense sequences. Like it just jumps around. He's like, as Scott uses the word whiplash. And I 100% agree with that. Yeah. And thematically too, like I think some of the arcs are really weak, particularly uh, well, the main arc, obviously, for um, our hero. If you, if you look at the line, that throwaway line about beating up the cop, and the situation that Huntley is in before he leaves to before he leaves to go to England, in that situation, to me, that's the type of character who is not serious about his work, who is unhappy in his job, and is just angry. And maybe something like the war, or the, or being a foreign correspondent over there, something that would impassion him and want him to to believe in something, right? And so they could have taken his character to be like almost becoming like almost an honorary Britain in, in a way by the end of it and showing like America that we have to that this is the danger that's coming to us and we can't just stick our nose in the sand and let it happen, you know, and, and I think like thematically they could have carried his arc to that full. But to, but but instead, they make it all about him just falling in love with the girl and he doesn't really give a shit about, you know, what's going on. He just loves Carol. And he even says to them on the plane, like, I don't know. I wish I didn't hear about Van Meer. I'm only concerned about you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to me, someone like Carol, who is politically into this peace situation, personally into this, who has personal investment, emotional investment into this peace situation, would she would want to go for a guy like that? Like, I don't know. That's just inconsistent to me. And I just found like the romance thing just didn't work at all for the movie. Yeah. Um, like it tries to balance Hitchcockian adventure with a propaganda film. And this is accomplished, you know, in those in many sequences by that sense of, you know, realism in the direction and the camera work, the detail that went into the special effects for the film and very dramatic, compelling sequences like and the danger surrounding the politics. It feels real. It feels urgent. Yes. But it's offset by that other not so great aspect of the romance storyline and the lead characters. 
Um, yeah. We're only a couple of years away from Notorious and well, a few years away from Notorious, which is a, f and I guess, I guess the war though, in fairness to this film, the war informed much more darkness into that story than this one, which is, I think, as you said correctly, Josh, this film was produced and written at such a time when the, 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 the true darkness of where the third Reich ended up is not yet is not yet revealed and i think i think it's just particular, the end of the particularly not to the point, not, right? not to america <laughs> yeah. anyways yeah exactly yeah. so so it is still informed by and very much uh kind of kind of colored by the the screwball comedies and the the more jocular fun so it's a it's a curious piece because it is trapped a bit and maybe i'm a, being a bit unfair on it because I'm expecting more from Hitchcock at this time because I've seen Rebecca and because I've seen the 39 steps, but he's, he's also trying to find his way as a singular director in an American system that isn't giving him yet the freedom. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a he, lot he's, going he's, on. He's getting here. there. Yeah. He's, he's getting, getting there. there. Yeah. yeah. But this is like, this is one of his things, right? It's a good, it's a good can... choice. Like I'm glad yeah. you selected it because although I didn't like the story and I'm, <laughs> I'm aware I've interrupted you, I apologize for that. No worries. I, 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 do, I, do I, I didn't like the story, but I'm, I'm really glad you chose it because it is, it's, it's a look at an intelligence film in a seminal director's career at a very interesting point in his career. And I think mm. we're, we're, we're doing a good job of, of kind of taxing that moment of history, you know? in his life oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you like like the choice basically it's a subversive propaganda message film and so i for that makes me at least in hindsight uh, you know you take that patchwork structure and awkward pacing to me because of what they're trying to do with this movie the the fault the flaws of the writing in this story is forgivable and it does allow me to enjoy its other elements, some of the dialogue, sense of realism, and the suspenseful yep. sequences, and 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 exciting by way of being very immersive set pieces, which it does have a very poignant, if ham-fisted, prescient ending, you know, to the whole to the whole story. Yeah. But I can only forgive it so much, so I gave it six and a half out of ten. Okay. Well, I mean, hey, we, we've got we've got it all represented here. Five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half. All right, Jeff, why don't you talk about acting, buddy? Well, um, I gave acting six. I'm still kind of on the cusp. I might give it a little higher, but there was it was like the 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 key standouts to me. I love George Sanders. Uh, he's great. Like I I don't think I've seen too much with him in it with him uh, previously but i really enjoyed him he really sort of captivated me every scene he was in he's quite a character in this and uh, i thoroughly enjoyed watching him um and uh so lorraine day uh, i mean she she's good uh but again she's all over the place so that's the only thing it's like her character was like yeah like wishy-washy like you know she'd go back and forth like you know every minute um I get. I don't know. Like, I feel like I, I gave the acting six. I don't know. I'm, I'm. I don't know. I think that's a where I should be at for this. Again, like I, I don't know McCray too, too well. Um, but I did. I did. I, I think he's a good actor. I did like him. I mean, I know. Again, he kind of teeter totters because of back and forth like we had just discussed. I, I would like to see him in other films. I did appreciate. Um, 
like I I liked his character and I like what he brought, but I just thought it was weird. And sometimes it the how he would go back and forth would bring me out of the enjoyment of the film sometimes because it doesn't make sense. Like I'm like he's that wishy washy, and again like just, I mean, we're repeating this over and over, but this is the same guy that punched a cop and he's all like wishy washy and he sends thirteen notes like take a hint, bro. Uh, you know, so it's just, I mean, <laughs> but, um, I, it's a, it's, I, I really like sort of the other smaller characters, like, um, the, just the little guys, like, you know, uh, was it Krug and, um, even, uh, Roly, like all these, the small characters, like, you know, the, the spies and the henchmen and all that kind of stuff. Um, I really enjoyed them and I thought they, they did bring a, a good sort of ensemble cast to, uh, like you know what i guess we could call a spy film because those are the those are the important characters because then that's how you see sort of like the network and how it works and like are they believable are they not like because uh, you know with tradecraft and spycraft and, and intelligence you always have lots of different types of people and and that's how uh, successful spy rings work is you have to deal with lots of different people and, and how you can yes. infiltrate different different uh you know uh, societies and that kind of stuff is there's all different types of makes of people and you have to be you have to have you know, hire different people like that so I thought the the little characters they had here and there worked and that was uh, that was uh, that was well done that way um, yeah. um, and I so I gave um, I gave acting six even though uh, and I, I again like I said I, I I'm giving it a kind of a mediocre but it, the standouts for me were the sort of the the side characters. Mm -hmm. very good yeah i'm with you i'm with you i was too. yeah i was one mark higher than you i was seven out of ten with the acting i would say arguably uh george sanders as foliot uh herbert Amazing. marshall as I stephen fisher and yeah. elbert Basterman as van meer really yeah are, those were the most yeah van meer was great in this film to mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. um well, was very good at him. like mccray is serviceable as john jones slash huntley but he is an, on autopilot from the get-go, so you can tell he is utilizing mm. his charisma. But the story yeah. has one half of a romantic lead and one half as an audience surrogate character. Yeah. I, I feel he's best in his action sequences when he plays, you know, the typical man who knew too much role. But he phones in the romance scenes or tries yeah. too hard, which is what we discussed, you know, back in the, too, in the other category. So, but the script asks him to as well. Like the, the script the is so he's just following the orders. writing. Yeah, yeah. I finish yeah. your sentence there for you. But the the writing yeah. asks him, demands these actors to be in love with each other so quickly and to do ridiculous things that maybe. And Josh, you rightly over the years of doing film reviews on Bond by Numbers and Beyond, like you rightly call me out on this. Like, don't dingy the actor for what the writers have given them. And I That's think this true. is a I think this is a situation where being hired on McCree, like I want to be because I think he is so inconsistent, but he's being right. asked to turn love not love, trust yeah. not trust. He's getting, the whip flash. Yeah, <laughs> he's getting the whip flash. He's getting the whip flash. So I'm I I'm trying to follow your lead there on that one when I'm cuz I want to come down hard on him. But yeah, I mean, I gave I gave the acting the exact same score as Jeff. And I think for principally the same reasons, the the leads that I'm meant to be tied into are not as engaging as the supporting actors. Like, I, I don't dislike Joel McCree either, but I think he's terribly cast in this movie. Like, but again, 
what would I know? Because he's never asked to play a part. He's not like Joseph Cotton in, in the third man who finds himself wrapped up in here. Right. But if, if yeah. this is a similar character arc, I mean, Cotton has got, he's got way more, yeah. you know, way yeah. more. But that script is not asking him to do as much flip and flap and flip and flap and back and forth either. Like he's allowed yeah. to, he's allowed to investigate his role as a guy trying to figure it out. Whereas yeah. Johnny Jones or Haverstock has got to flip flop so much that yes. we're watching an actor who could be really good in a role. Yeah. yeah no. You know, I mean, in amongst all this awkwardness though, like, like, I don't know, like I mean, he's not that bad. I just don't know no. that the writers or Hitchcock right. really knew what they wanted of him. And that comes back to yes. the story. Lorraine yeah. Day, Lorraine, Day, meh, like she's a good actor Weird. and she was yeah, more sure. interesting for me she to was... watch. But I mean, she <laughs> pales in comparison to other Hitchcock females. Like oh, even, even Carol Absolutely. Lombard and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, she plays the funny. She plays comedy much better than Lorraine Day does. I think they asked Lorraine Day. Well, Lombard too much. plays comedy brilliantly. You don't have to argue with me on that one. Uh, Fisher, listen. I, I like this. Is not a hot take, okay? This is not a hot take, maybe, but it might be with the two of you because you both seem really, really keen on him. I think he's a poor man's James Mason. And if you think about yeah, Van Damme, if you think about Van Damme <laughs> in North by Northwest, this is almost the same role, but he is so less interesting. And maybe it's because the script didn't give him as much, but he's the most consistent performer. Him and yeah. maybe Van yes. Mears. He's the most consistent right. performer in here. He doesn't have as much flip flapping to do. He just has no. the moral, the moral kind of compass he needs to negotiate within himself. He's too yes. polished and he's way too public to be a guy that's wrapped up in in this cover. Like everywhere yeah, he goes, true. he's trusted, he's loved. Like it just isn't believable to me. There's not a single person to say a bad thing about him until Jones pops into the scene. But that's not the acting though. That's like the that's, that's the writing though. Story, you know what I mean? Yeah, because, I know exactly what you because, mean. But you know. because in terms of the writing, you're dismissing the idea of this guy being this politician, being mm -hmm. a German spy who's basically sabotaging the peace thing. Yeah. Like well, it okay. sounds such like a Hollywood premise that you just wouldn't believe that in real life. So mm -hmm. and when and we're trying to sell this guy in a very kind of in a story that seems to want for us to believe in its realism <laughs> so it's hyper realism if you think about it yeah. um it just it just doesn't i just don't buy it from a writing level you know and i yeah. agree with that 100 i don't buy but george don't sanders like... either like i don't buy him in this role and the reason i say that is because it's a cookie cutter role man you just fill a tweed yeah. suit fill a tweed suit and get the guy going around in a motor car that's all like, i did not see what you guys saw with george sanders here in this movie i didn't like, i just didn't, i enjoyed him like i mean i, I get it i just yeah i, I, I enjoyed i enjoyed was, him on the was, screen I, I found him more interesting than than mccray's oh, character like i just found no, him more interesting he was uh i found him more courageous and i believed in his in his in his courage i believed in his love for his country and what he was doing i like the fact that he wasn't written off as some sort of like you know, as some a romantic rival to McRae's character. I really, yeah, that's true. That's that true. They, they really could have screwed that, that one up like, if they had like, gone there. <laughs> would have gotten I don't know. I think yeah, that you might have yeah. enjoyed, you might have enjoyed Foliot in a better movie. That's my opinion on that. On yeah, that maybe, like, maybe yeah. I would, but I, I tell you, I, right. I, I tell you who I did enjoy. I tell you who yeah. I did enjoy. Okay. There are two characters in this film that I really enjoyed. Awesome. Okay. Is Mrs. Sprague, one of them. Mrs. Sprague is one of them played by Frances <laughs> yeah. Carter. Okay. I liked her. Yes. She's good yes. because yeah. she's yeah. consistent. And Edmund yeah. Gwen's Rowley. I liked as well. I thought sure. he yeah. was good. 
Um, Mrs. Sprague, by the way, also played Mrs. Potter in Shadow of a Doubt. She was a librarian. Yes. That I remember her. To break into. I remember her vividly I when ask, I saw her. Like, let me ask you guys a question, right? Like, is this acting or is this writing or is this directing? But the actors deliver their lines so quickly. And sometimes I had to go back and watch a scene three times just to keep up. It's like an assault on the ears, just trying to keep up. In, in process with their dialogue yeah, like especially especially sanders and mccray they're just like how about that it's, a, yeah. it's, it's the it's the machine gun right oh man dialogue. it's too much yeah. and that's what i was going to say that's uh, it seems to be that that was the style though correct yeah yeah i guess it was a style at the time just it's too many words like written too many words written style well, one thing i just sorry what my point that was off topic but i just want to say i the the torture scene mm. with officer mm -hmm. man mm -hmm. Uh, was amazing. Like, yeah, it was I really great. enjoyed it. Yeah. I thought that was quite, quite well acted. Uh, well acted, and also, I don't know. I thought it was pretty uh, ahead of its time to show that type. It of, was. That's a good point, Jeff. Yeah, uh, like it was. It was intense. All the lights. Like, could intense. you just imagine? Because the part I was thinking is like, imagine all those guys bringing all those lights into that room and a record player. You're like, what the hell is going on in there? Yeah, yeah. you know. But also, I did enjoy like when when Bossman kind of had that epiphany, or he was blind. He's like, "Oh, and then he changes." Like, I, I mean, it was pretty quick. Like, you know, mm -hmm. but everything mm -hmm. apparently in this movie, a flick of a switch. But I, I except actually for the did running time, enjoy. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I really enjoyed that scene with Bossman. I thought it was uh, that was an excellent scene. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point. And I guess maybe that that's a nice way to lead us into atmosphere, isn't it, Josh? Because mm. that's one of the scenes that stands out for its artistry. That's fine. I think we talked about, you know, Herbert Marshall and both me and, and Foliot. And I think, and uh, George Saunders in this, and obviously me, you, me and Jeff have a different opinion on, on it than you. So there's no real reason for me to reinforce, you know, my appreciation for it in this sense. So um, I just found it like, I was thinking of James Mason in North by Northwest when I was watching it, because he had the same kind of mannerisms and, and whatnot. But this was before North by Northwest. I just think it's, it was a more nuanced character. And Mason was playing a very different villain than uh, than Marshall was in this role. Was he? You know what I mean? Like, was he really? Yes. Like, Van Damme is a piece of shit. Like, he is a spy. He is a uh, he, he's a spy. Like he's, you know, he's selling out secrets and whatnot. He's a, he's an, op, he's an opportunist. Right. Okay. Like he, okay. But okay. Let, let, but the, other man is a the other man is a patriot for his country. I don't see that. With the love I don't of his see daughter. that. I see he Fisher is. using his daughter to schmooze social situations, to use her as a front for his organization. I see I, him as a total manipulator. I don't, I don't see him as, I don't see him as that because his sacrifice at the end undo, undoes all that, in my opinion, and reinforces that he loves his daughter more than he loves his country. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 and and that's why. But he never gets sense. a chance to really prove that because he dies in the crash. But he confesses to her and tells her everything, and he says like, and he's willing to be arrested in in America. You know, like that's what he's willing to do, so that she has a better life. You know, afterwards, and that's what he's willing to do. I don't know. I just don't see it. I see maybe in mannerisms a comparison to the Mason character in North by Northwest. But he didn't have a daughter that he was conflicted about. He had no conflicts about what he was doing. He wasn't yeah, conflicted he, up until he was up until he was up until he was revealed. He wasn't conflicted no, the whole way through Kruger, the movie. When Kruger was talking to him about, you know, like he seemed very not very happy about having to like take care of, you know, of McCray's um, character. You know, there was a conflict in that too. I saw that in the performance. I didn't see that in the performance. I saw him using his daughter, not really until the conversation on the on the plane, 
he was right. using her as a pretty face in all of these symposiums and these press conferences around the world for okay. the peace party. I, I did not see that at all. I found that now here's the thing. That's yeah. what I saw personally. And yeah. maybe in the writing, they were trying to evoke that. And maybe that sticked out for me mm-hmm. more than it did for you. Fair now, enough. maybe yeah. as maybe <laughs> as a father, maybe you could see like and and thinking of this man's character, maybe you could see, you know, like the dark side of, of, of that relationship and see in that perspective. You know, in terms of like, you know, like how could someone do that to their daughter kind mm. of a situation? You know what I mean? I wasn't looking through, you know, Sorry. that lens. You know, I was, I don't know. I yeah, now I, mean, I feel like I misread his character completely now. No, no, I don't I, think I don't think no, you no, did. No, no. I, I think you're right. We're just seeing it from different perspectives. I think you're seeing, seeing it from it. two perspectives. Because yeah. I, I thought he was a I like I kind of saw him as like uh, like a decent father and I, but i also think he realized what he had done that's what i mean it's like i don't yeah. know i, well, I, I appreciate him the same way but but i do but i i can see where scott's coming from okay like, I, I totally mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. it maybe it's uh, the so first I, half oh, second I, half of the film I, type why? split maybe maybe he's more that way in the first half but yeah uh and then when he sees the jig is up he he has a legitimate change of conscience Anyway, however you yeah. saw it, um... it's just an example of how our biases, you know, hmm. inform informs us and how we, you know, how we react to art, right? Like it's just, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's that's interesting, right. and that's what discussion's all about. Let's hop on to um, atmosphere. Atmosphere, yeah. All right. Just, well, okay. I'll just say, like, I gave the atmosphere. This nine was my this I was my highest mark. Yeah, and I think everyone's going to agree with that because um, as much as we were saying, like, the tones off. However, um, the it was the atmosphere. Even though I don't know the tone is off because of the writing. Yeah, um, that sets knocked the point really, out. Really, yeah, but the sets were just like I was just absolutely amazed. Um, it was built like, in Hollywood, was, not in the U- in the UK. Remember that too. Yeah. Okay. That that's a good point. Uh, but yeah, like right from the I mean the windmills uh, in the you know all the yeah. you know, with the Don Quixote land. Yeah, that's that cool. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and but honestly, I was just I watched the the plane crashing a couple of times, uh, and I was just absolutely like, and I mean, I I I didn't know any of this. Stuff. Thank you, obviously, for uh, describing in detail the the production uh, that uh, that went into that. Uh, the plane crash scene uh just amazing really really well done like uh and even the acting was pretty like you know the the old lady on the plane like everyone was uh it was pretty well acted and uh, it was good and and this just made me think jeff carrying on the plane the rice paper that josh (laughs) is talking about the real projection the actors in the scene would have seen that happen too they would have seen yeah. the water as the camera's going down, and then they would have that's seen the water. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. That's it's not yeah. just a trick. But watching the them, yeah. but yeah, like, like swimming in the water and then grabbing them. Like, I mean, there's physical parts too, too. Like, is you know, yeah, it's good uh, acting. And, it's just good physical. It, it acting. was good acting because you. The thing is, is like, I mean, you know, I can watch any film in any era, and I, I, I do my best to to watch it as I'm trying to. If I was, you know, at that time watching the film, because. I mean, I can obviously be like, oh, I don't believe that. Oh, look at the strings. That's not me. I can see that, but I can I can put that aside. Uh, and, I, and I was very, very um, impressed with uh, the production value and, and how the scenes were um, put together. And, and yeah, the water, um, I, I was really captivated by it, watching it. Like, it was very well done. And, the, and I, though sometimes I thought it was funny, like, you would see the toy, the plane, or even at the beginning when they do, like, the um the push into the 
the building you know like that's mm-hmm. clearly mm-hmm. like a toy mm-hmm. but it's still like it's it's still well done it's still well shot um hitchcock's but, films often start with a look into a window they like yes. think think about it psycho rear like, window true. shadow of a doubt lady vanishes um, lady vanishes mm-hmm. uh topaz I don't know. I can't remember Torn Curtain, maybe. But I mean, he loves this idea of moving from the public to the private. You know, he, he cracks right in there. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is I gave it a nine because as much as certain aspects of the film kind of put me off here and there, even though I, I did actually give them decent scores, is that the atmosphere just kept bringing me back because it was just I mean, it, it's Hitchcock and it just the atmosphere and the, and the filming of it is great. Like I love that scene when, when he's trying to chase the assassin and you see it's like, uh, and with all the, the umbrellas and sort of almost, almost like a domino effect of watching them get pushed and you can follow the chase through, uh, through the, you know, the, the moving umbrellas and, and the windmill scene, um, the hotel scene, uh, you know, and with him going outside and, and knocking the letters off, uh, it's just uh, the atmosphere just I feel is the one thing that really was the cohesion. It's the mayo and the BLT, right? It, it's the mm-hmm. thing that really mm-hmm. makes makes the sandwich. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and so I, I was really, really impressed with that. Like I, I that's why I watched some of those scenes a couple of times, just being like, wow, this is this is really, really well done. So well at the, at the risk of, of playing devil's advocate, I we can we, we can fanboy this one, I know. Yeah. But I, I am apparently, so that's fine. <laughs> do that's fine. do we see this film? I mean, we talked about the scenes in Charade with um Cary Grant, or maybe off recording, we talked about that and how the film sort of you know that that rooftop scene is is not dissimilar. To, I mean, can we see any right. other ways without projecting? Like, can we see any direct links to to future Hitchcock's or other films of its era? Or would that just well, be an experiment in fanboying? Like, I don't want to do that. Would the hotel sign it's not really be a fanboy? Like a, it's more of a historical well, analysis of his work, if anything, and just mm-hmm. showing there's sequences in foreign correspondent that remind me of sequences in the 39 steps. There's, and of course, there's scenes in foreign correspondent that, you know, like that's the whole scene of when they leave him uh, near the windmill and you see them driving away down the road and the windmill is just turning. It had the mm-hmm. same kind of feel, you know, in, in when Thornhill is on the side of the road, you know, mm-hmm. by that crop mm-hmm. uh, yes, in North yes. by Northwest, you know, waiting for that ride mm. to appear. Um, it, you know, there was that element in how he stages suspense in his scenes and let, lets them draw out and lets them play in almost an organic way, even though he's controlling everything. There was that feel to the scenes in this film, just as there was, you know, in his later works, right? So it's obviously we're going to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. What did you go for, Josh, with atmosphere? I'm curious. I mean, I'll t- give you my thoughts really quickly in a few minutes. Yeah. But just what, what did you do? I liked Rudolph Mate's filming. He did a great job, you know, with the camera. And Cameron Menzies did a great job with the visual effects with Hitchcock pretty much, I'm sure, in tow on this movie. And uh, the score-wise, I wasn't a really huge fan of the score. It was a bit too, too jingoistic for me and didn't really capture the tone of the film they were trying to tell, in my opinion. But that was also the style of Hollywood films back then, too. So... I kind of give it a pass on that. Um, but everything else that I found was fantastic in terms of the detail that went into the special effects and did the set design and everything. Um, they did a really good job of bringing that to life. The tonal whiplash in terms of like romance storyline that they you know shoved into the film, that to me kind of disassembled the atmosphere a little bit for me. And so I couldn't quite immerse myself in, in the entirety of it, only in certain 
parts of the movie that was controlled enough yeah. to keep That's that love story too. element out. Like there's almost like there's two different films being made here yeah. and the atmosphere conveyed that and how well those particular scenes were done. But it did it so well for me that I gave it the highest mark of of uh, this review, and that's eight out of ten. Okay. Right. okay. Well, I I'm I went for a seven, and I think because I like I don't know, like uh, I think you said it, but I just didn't go for an eight. <laughs> I think it's okay. The, the scenes that took me out of it took me out of it, but I thought Alfred Newman's titular music was really jumpy really sweeping and very you use the word jingoistic which is not at all a bad adjective or a, a descriptor i think it is of that ilk and it wasn't what I expected from the introduction to the film. Like the score would suggest even the diegetic moments where the character in the bathroom is whistling it, right? Like he's whistling the theme tune <laughs> oh, of yeah. love sure. and fancy. And I think that there's that reluctance by either the studio execs or Hitchcock himself to let go of the Richard Haney sort of daring do guy. And that kind of the Dudley do right features of the film really, really impacted my appreciation of it as a singular film experience which is kind of what you were saying how it splits your attention away yeah. from the overall wanted, atmosphere into set pieces yeah, and like exactly. i felt i felt like i could only celebrate the set pieces and there wasn't an overall feeling to the film for me um but like there are some good some good small things like that was a great kind of vertical i don't know it's a it, it's no it's more than a tilt it must be like a vertical crane or tracking or something as he's walking up that that kind of spire that that, that that staircase inside the windmill that was cool which is then of course mm. kind of mirrored later as we have the vertical ascension of the elevator and the lift in the tower you know you've got stuff going on there there's some neat things like did but, anyone get vibes yeah. from uh 1931's frankenstein in that windmill a little bit yes little <laughs> bit. i can yeah. see where you come from yeah there. there's, a, there's a bit of that there and obviously we've talked about the clipper at the end, um, but the saccharine film music, anytime Carol enters a scene, it's just really pushing the love. Took me out of it a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So although it's, it's not Casablanca. Like, no, yeah, my, but I mean, no, of course, but Casablanca yeah. is a much better theme, isn't it? There's a darkness yeah. in that too. Max, that, that Max music. Steiner, right? I yeah. mean, but Alfred song. Newman is a titan. Like he is a titan of film music. He just, I think he just sent in a couple of love themes and told the guys to go do whatever the hell they wanted with it. Like Williams yes. orchestrated for Alfred Newman later in his career. You know, we're talking about the guy who did how the West was won. He is of course the, the patriarch of the Newman, the Thomas, the Randys, like he yeah. is the Titan and one yeah. of the absolute first and best of the Hollywood system. But this is a phoned in score. I, I didn't like it very much for me yeah. personally. So I went for a seven, um, but I, I did like some of the transitions in this film and I like some of them and i'm wondering if you guys picked up on the two james bond moments there's actually one moment with two james bond drops here i wonder mm -hmm. if you picked up on it you mean like actual like camera transitions what you're saying yeah there's a camera transition yeah. when when yeah. jones gets on to the canard white star line do you remember when he's on the queen mary and you see this moment where the tickets are being it's a transition it's like kind of like a a fade or like a, it's a I don't know what you call it. It's not a dissolve, but it, it's it's basically a superimposition, and you got you've got the the purser or the bursar putting out the the tickets. On the tickets, we see yeah John Jones or whatever his name is, mm -hmm. 
But then we see Grace Jones and Tom Jones are both there in amongst the tickets that are laid. <laughs> it's true. Seriously? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Man, no, go oh, go back great. and look for it. You'll see Grace Jones prescient. and Tom oh, Jones. I'm just saying it's there. If you look that's, for it, it's there. That's, that's prescient. Yeah. Another so connection to great. Roger Moore. Uh, George Sanders originally voiced the saint on the radio in the, in the 40s. Ah, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I'll tell you. That is a, that is neat. I like that one. And I got a Roger Moore one too. It's not, it's more of an aesthetic Roger Moore thing, but seeing as we're one day past the 95th There's birthday 95th of, of our friend, birthday. Roger Moore, yeah. I think I should say this one. There was a line in the film that I liked and I thought that's a, that's a James Bond, Roger Moore's Bond line. It's when, it's when he's at the party and he says, I wrote it down here. Um, let me see. Yeah. I have a Latvian friend here who's particularly interested in the history of the kilt. I wonder if you'd be interested in talking <laughs> with him. And he uses oh, that guy no. in the kilt to get out of the situation. I thought that was quite funny. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Anyway, right, guys, the scores are in for Foreign Correspondent, brought to us by Double O Taylor in our first of three non-bonds. And uh, let's see, uh, I'm 18 and a half. Josh is 21 and a half. And Jeff I think I'm 22. is nine six. Jeff is 22 and a half. Yeah. Oh, so, 22 and a half. Yeah. yeah. So that's it. Josh, Jeff liked it more than I did. Um, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan, as so many of our listeners will be. That does not, however, extend to foreign correspondent. It's uh, <laughs> its balance of tones is just a little bit off for me, although I fully appreciate there are some great things going on here. But in, in defense of the film, it was filmed at a at a strange time, a, a budding time yeah. of Hitchcock's career in America. Also pre-war, there's lots going on. The executive pressures of the studio matched with the artistic vision. I'm not sure what was going on here. There's too much, too much stuff mixed together to be one of the good Hitchcock films for me. But I think it's a great fit for Bond by Numbers Three Non Bonds because uh, yeah. it it fits well. It fits well in what we do here. So I like I liked it. And I applaud you there, Josh, for bringing it in. Also, you knew when you brought it in that this is not going to be one of those moments where we're talking about uh, Carol's the third man. This is not going to be a, a top rated no. picture by all of us. It's it's going to be no. a, a discussion point. So, yeah, I, I think that's I why think I it's a good it. one. Because I knew when I first saw it that I found like exactly as you said, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's inconsistent with the story. They're trying to tell two movies at the same time. Um, but there's still I still think there's also a lot to enjoy in it. And you get to see like, a, you know, a budding soon to be, you know, auteur in this film. And even like you can even though you can see a lot more of that in his earlier films before Foreign Correspondent. But when it comes to like him making his first Hitchcock, like Rebecca was not a Hitchcock type of film at all no. this was hitchcock's first like american film using his own style and ideas but also having to kind of blend that with the with the hollywood style of writing of, of thrillers that was going on at the time so it was it was like almost like those two worlds colliding here and it's a historical curiosity not a great movie but a historical mm -hmm. curiosity mm -hmm. for sure jeff any final words on foreign correspondent before we put it to sleep well, I was just going to say, I remember when I was watching, I was telling Josh, like, this doesn't almost feel like a Hitchcock movie to me. Like, it was a bit, like, I was I was expecting, I guess, because I was expecting something like a 39 Steps or or, or what have you. But uh, I, I definitely, 
it was a great one to watch. Like, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad it's, uh, you know, it's another, because I haven't watched, I definitely have not watched all of Hitchcock's films. I've enjoyed, I would say I've enjoyed every Hitchcock that I have seen. Uh, I'm really glad that I was able to watch this. And even though it, it does sort of strike off in, in the tone, as we, we all agree on, even though my I, I clearly uh, graded it higher than you guys in, uh, overall, uh, I'm very happy that it was chosen and uh, well done for just choosing it and i'm glad i was able to watch it and uh, uh I, I, it, basically this is a success because we had a, a very decent conversation uh for the non-bond episode here so yeah, yeah. I, i'm just saying it was a good time and we've got two All more right. to come we've got two more to come yes we do yeah so what's up next uh so i have chosen the ipcris file okay the ipcris file yeah yeah Len produced Dighton. by harry saltzman that's right yeah, excellent. Wow, and, that'll be and, neat. And um, so, if we're going uh, with recent news, uh, literally a day, one day ago, uh, Michael uh, Kane has just mentioned that he is retiring from acting. Uh, he's ninety years oh, old, wow. and okay. and he has one film, and it's just been released called The Great Escaper. Uh, this I think released on Netflix or something to that effect. Uh, it's either just out or just coming out. I forget which. But he just after that had mentioned that he is now uh, retiring from acting. Uh, I think his quote said something. All I'm going to get now are old man roles. Hmm. I'm done. I've done everything. So <laughs> I, think just, yeah. I was surprised that McCain Kane wasn't in the cast for Oppenheimer because he usually works Me too. with Nolan. Because quite yeah, a bit. Usually, I guess yeah. that's just indicating you know that you know that he's done and I guess in that respect. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought I, it's because I had I had thought about this film way back. I think one of my first choices for the the non bonds a couple of years ago, and then I thought, well, you know what? Because I'll be honest, I was having a hard time thinking of a, a non bond that you know. So I was like, you know what? Let's see. And then uh, I I decided mm -hmm. to pull the trigger on it, pun intended. Nice one. And yeah, uh, yeah that's bureaucratic so bureaucratic spy story essentially. Um, from yep. what I understand about it. And John Barry also did the score too. I yeah, believe. very well known score. But you know, if you think about Double O Chapman's choices throughout these, he's he's done well. We we had a bit of Ronan and we had a bit of the Quiller Memorandum. Yeah, the Quiller we had a bit of yeah. cool pick. Born uh the Born uh, the Identity, born identity right? Yeah. The first one. And then now we're going to the Ipcris file. So can I tell you something, guys? Um, this is a film I'm very aware of. But I have never seen. I've never seen. I've never seen it, but I am aware of it too. So, yeah, I've never seen it. I know there will be a lot of people listening who'll be like, "What? How the fuck can you guys have a Bond podcast? You're Saltzman and John Barry fans, and you don't know this one." But I hey, haven't seen it. I ha neither of us have seen cool. it. So this is going to be you're fun. You're welcome, guys. Yeah. You're yeah. welcome. You're welcome. And Josh, <laughs> with your selection here today, a foreign correspondent, that brings your experience of the three non bonds to an end, at least as a driver. Uh, before this one, you had brought us the third man, uh, and before that, third man, you brought us was charade, charade, and before uh, that, your first one was. I think it was Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. Oh no, there you good go, good man. There, there you go. Yeah, you got yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. Good job. So that yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, well, we'll find out what mine is after our next episode, where we look at Double O Chapman's mm. Yeah, Chris Files. Yeah, it is Len Dighton that wrote that book, isn't it? I believe it's Len Dighton. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and thank you, Double O Taylor, for bringing this one to our attention. It was uh, good fun looking through this old Hitchcock again, even if I didn't see it quite the same way as you guys did. But that's the beauty and the liberty of our format, isn't it? Indeed, it is. Right. It is. 
So thanks, everyone. We'll get you back here on Bond by Numbers very soon. Yeah.